Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwall Report. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I've possibly a controversial show for you today because I have two guests who are going to be talking about the meaning and the purpose of Islam and the Quran. My first guest is Gregory Davis, and he's the author with a new book out called House of War. Islam's Jihad Against the World. He's also a filmmaker who produced the feature documentary Islam, What the West Needs to Know. According to his book, Islam is a violent expansionary ideology that seeks the destruction of other faiths, cultures, and systems of government. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hi, thank you for having me. Great. My second guest is Qasem Rashad, who's a defender of the Islamic faith, and he's the national spokesperson of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He, too, is an author of the critically acclaimed book, Wrong Kind of Muslim, author of the best-selling book, Extremist, and he's out with a new book soon called Talk to Me. Salaam alaikum, Qasim. Wa alaikum, Islam. How are you? Good, sir. It seems the only thing you guys have in common are controversial titles for all your books. Well, I hope you have more than that. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll get a better understanding of Islam and the Quran by the end of the show. So, gentlemen, Greg, let's start with you. Um, give our listeners an idea of what your book is about, The House of War. Well, uh, the point of departure really is um, the insistence among Western leaders, I think, of all stripes mm. um, in America, Republican, Democrat, and liberal conservative in Western Europe, that the Islamic violence we have seen in the world over the past few decades is not an expression of Islam proper, that uh, such violence is necessarily a perversion of Islamic teaching, Islamic doctrine, um, and Islamic history. Um, and Western policy towards the Islamic world has been based on that belief. And my question was, is that true? Mm-hmm. Um, and when one gets into the Islamic sources uh, in a general way, um, it becomes apparent that that's not the case, that violence in Islam mm-hmm. uh, goes back really to the example of Muhammad, who is the ideal man, the example for Muslims throughout history, and that he was not only a religious man, um, but he was also a political and military leader, Um, and he made it his mission in the latter part of his career to subdue by force Mm -hmm. um, the Arabian Peninsula, and then instructed his followers that they were on a global mission Right. Um, to bring the law of Allah, Sharia law, to the world. Mm-hmm. What made you? What made you write the book? Well, um, concern, I suppose, as an American, as a Westerner, um, as a political scientist, mm-hmm. that this peculiar consistency across party lines and so on was fundamentally incorrect. That people simply weren't asking the inconvenient questions. Uh, about what is at the heart of Islam, whether violence is there or whether it's not. Um, And the consequences of that mistake we are seeing throughout the world in the efforts by the West to bring democracy to the Muslim world, which is fundamentally unsuited for it, precisely because Islam is not merely a religion, as we understand it, but it is a political ideology. Did you get any guidance from Muslim leaders when you were doing your research? Well, you know, when we made the documentary, Mm -hmm. um, Islam, What the West Needs to Know, we tried to find uh, Muslims, uh, Muslim scholars and so on, who would talk to us, who would present basically a counterpoint to the conclusion of the movie. And we had a great a very difficult time doing that. Uh, They didn't want to talk to us. When we started asking some basic questions, we'd basically um, be shown the door. Um, They didn't want to talk to you? They didn't want to talk to you, or they disagreed with you? Well, well, we couldn't really determine that, because they wouldn't talk to us. Uh, And I think they didn't want to talk to us, Mm. because, um, again, I think it is hard when we look at the Quran and the Sunnah, the way of the Prophet Muhammad, Hmm. um, to come to any conclusion other than that violence is woven into the very DNA of Islam. 
You see, um, when I when I read you know, your press release and I read your book, and we're going to go over it as well, um, what really got me was it was almost like a, a, a revelation, you know, and at, at times outrageous um, and, and extremely controversial because there were things in there that I wasn't sort of aware of. So do you think there's a need for such a book in today's place when we have enough problems? Because you're not sort of dowsing the controversy, you're actually increasing it. Well, I don't, I don't know that I am. Mm. I, I'm hoping to clarify uh, and my main purpose is to influence people in the West and policymakers mm. to reconsider their assumptions and to take corrective action. Because the problem is, um, because we're operating from a fundamental mistake, um, our policies don't work. We see what happened in you know, throughout the Middle East. We have this idea that if we can just sort of knock off quasi-secular dictators like, say, Saddam Hussein, right. that there will be a flowering of Islamic democracy behind it. That's what you and said in the book. that's not what yeah. happens at all. Right. We see exactly the opposite. We see a much worse situation, not only from our point of view, mm-hmm. from a national security point of view, but for the people who live there, okay. uh, Muslims and others. They're caught in a terrible civil war, and now they're being... Um, uh, having to fight uh, ISIS, which is, you know, one of the worst developments um, that has come out of uh, all of our activity there. Using your book uh, and and, and your uh, observation and Qasim's guidance, I want to just go from a top-down approach of of Islam and the Quran. Um, Let's start with the meaning of Islam. To the best of my knowledge, uh, it means peace. So, Qasim, what's the meaning of Islam for you? Well, I think the important thing is what is the meaning of Islam according to the Quran and Prophet Muhammad, Mm. Uh, because um, as uh, we know, that is who defines Islam, not any contemporary terrorist organization or not any you know, extremist thinker from the 20th century, we're talking, what does the Prophet Muhammad, what does the Quran say? And what we find consistently uh, from the lifestyle of Prophet Muhammad, from the uh, Quran, and even looking at the Arabic word, Islam is an Arabic word that means peace. Uh, And it has another part of it that means submission to the will of God. And when we study what those words mean Mm -hmm. and how to apply them, Prophet Muhammad's example is powerful. It's inner peace. It's waging that inner jihad against evil, against violence, against terrorism. And it's submitting your personal morals, your personal life to the will of God. And God's will is defined as living a life of personal worship to Him and public service to all humanity, no matter who they are, whether they're black, white, Christian, Jewish, atheist, the peace and submission that Islam uh, imbibes, that Prophet Muhammad established, uh, was to attain that inner peace by fighting against yourself any inclination to evil or violence, and by submitting to the will of God, by serving all humanity. You know, and this is a very similar concept to what we read in the Bible, that faith without works is dead. And the Quran and Islam champion mm. this concept that you can, of course, you should pray to God, you should have faith in God, but that peace and submission is useless if you don't also serve all humanity. That is what Islam means. Well, Greg, on page 25 of your book, you've been quoted as saying that the idea that Islam is a religion of peace is fundamentally, totally and disastrously disastrously wrong. Um, Am I right? Yes. I mean, I think um, we can certainly agree that the whole discussion hinges on the Quran and the Sunnah, the way of the Prophet Muhammad, because those are the two principal and undeniable sources of Islamic inspiration. So you mean, are you saying that Islam means peace only if the rest of the world become Islamic? Well, that is that is certainly one aspect of it. That is certainly an interpretation. Said Qutb, for example, interpreted that way, yes. That 
you know, with these words, peace and submission, for example, peace, or doing the will of God, well, the question is, well, what, what is the will of Allah? Uh, the, doing the will of God in Islamic context could be very different from doing the will of God in a Christian context. Well, what I understood from Qasim was that regardless of whether you're a Christian or Buddhist, whatever, Qasim, help me out here because it, it, we've got two yeah. opposing views. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's telling whenever uh, a critic of Islam cites uh, Sayyid Qutb, that tells me that they um, are afraid to engage the Quran and the Sunnah. Mm. Um, Sayyid Qutb is a modern-day terrorist. Um, 1,400 years after Jesus Christ, we had uh, the racist terrorist uh, slave traders who um, enslaved uh, 20 million Africans. So if I were to learn about Christianity, I'm not going to look at them. Same way, if I want to learn about Islam, I'm not going to look to, you know, Sayyid Qutb or these terrorists that lived in the 20th century. I'm going to go back to what the Quran and Prophet Muhammad established. And what they established was quite simple, that your only obligation as a Muslim is to convey the message of Islam by your actions of service to humanity. And this is why the Quran repeatedly says that there shall be no compulsion in religion, that whether people believe or don't believe, you are not a keeper over them. It is not your right or your responsibility to worry about what people believe or how they behave. You are only responsible for yourself. And that peace that Islam champions mm. is that inner peace against that struggle, uh, against that inner struggle to evil. So, so in actuality, the, the greatest meaning of jihad, which means struggle, is that struggle against the self that incites people to do evil. And we're told to, to, you know, check yourself, check your own actions, don't worry about other people. Greg, do you agree? Well, I, I fully agree that we need to talk about Islam, uh, the Quran, and the Sunnah. The reason is I mentioned Qutb was simply because he wrote on the question of what, what submission or peace means. But when we get to the example of Muhammad, that is where we have the fundamental problem. Because Muhammad, in the first part of his career in Mecca, preached a kind of bland monotheism and tried to convert pagans as well as Jews and Christians there mm. to Islam. And he finally made enough enemies that he had to leave and go to Medina. And it was there that the Islamic calendar begins with year one. And the reason for that is that is when the Muslims became not merely a religious community, as we would understand that in the West, but a political military community in Medina. Mm. And yes, the problem is, when we look at Muhammad, um, we have the example of a founder of a, of a religion, a man of prayer, but a man who waged numerous battles, uh, razias, or uh, basically raids of piracy, against uh, non-Muslims, plundering their goods, which became the way of life for the Muslim community in Medina. And when he was finally strong enough, he killed hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. It's sort of hard to know exactly how many from the Islamic sources. This is the example of Muhammad. And the idea of doing God's service, the supreme service, is to kill and be killed in the way of jihad. Jihad does mean struggle. But we know from Muhammad that primarily means a military undertaking. And while you can find lots of quotes in the Quran, mm -hmm. for example, no compulsion in religion. Well, that sounds nice, except for the fact that that was a verse revealed early in Muhammad's career. Mm -hmm. And according to the principle of interpretive abrogation, al-Nasik wal-Mansuk, which means that later verses revealed in Muhammad's time, abrogate earlier ones, that verse, there is no compulsion in religion, is obsolete. And we now have verses like the verse of the sword, which encourages to kill the unbelievers wherever you find them, whenever you have opportunity. And that, historically, we have seen that as the case. The idea that Islam is some sort of, is naturally tolerance of non-Muslims, is empirically preposterous. The Islamic Empire was a slave-based system that exploited Christians and Jews who were allowed to live only insofar as they could pay the jizya, 
the poll tax, which is a Quranic injunction, pagans had no rights. They, they were either to convert to Islam or be killed. And that is why Islam really is probably the bloodiest single identifiable ideology that has ever existed on the planet. Qasim, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, there's a lot to weigh in here. You know what? Our listeners should just pause for a moment and look at this logically. And I'm going to get into the substance in just a moment. Mm. But if Islam really was this, you know, barbaric, bloody ideology, there's 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. And the world would not be in any state at all right now. It would be completely destroyed. Uh, the fact that you had a thousand years of Islamic science with unprecedented advances in algebra and geometry and medicine, anesthesia, uh, you name it. The very first university ever established was by a black female Muslim woman scholar uh, who established Al-Qairoun University in Morocco. Um, and it's the longest running university. So, so this is how Islam empowered people to attain education. And this university was open to Christians, to Jews, to anyone who wanted to worship there, and it still is. I'm, not, I'm sorry, not worship, but uh, who wanted to study there, and it still is today. Uh, the covenants that Prophet Muhammad wrote to Christians of his time uh, that are in existence till today, that clearly say, Christians are my citizens, and by God, I hold fast against anything that displeases them. But let's really get into the nitty-gritty here about the life of Prophet Muhammad and, and you know, just pick up any biography of Prophet Muhammad written by a scholar, whether it's by Karen Armstrong or Muhammad Zafullah Khan. Uh, you know, there are so many wonderful biographies about him. You have to know his life. And, you know, my colleague on this phone call is correct. In, in Mecca, it was a very bland, uh, uh, you know, uh, religion in the sense that uh, the Muslims were forbidden from any kind of fighting or discord. They were even forbidden from protesting in the streets. The Muslims were brutally persecuted, murdered. They were boycotted for three years and nearly starved to death in Mecca. Mm -hmm. And Prophet Muhammad said, your only options are to stay here and bear it peacefully or leave the country altogether. And history testifies that many Muslims left. In fact, Muslims left and were afforded refuge by the righteous Christian king of uh, Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia. Now, here is the key element that no critic of Islam will uh, tell you, because this is such a well-recorded fact of history, that this verse, there is no compulsion in religion, was one of the last verses ever revealed in Islam. It was one of the verses revealed in Medina after Prophet Muhammad had become the de facto ruler of Medina. At that time, when he had the power to exact a sword on every neck, at that point in time he refused, and this verse was revealed that said there shall be no compulsion in religion. So aside from this nonsensical abrogation theory that has zero merit whatsoever, what we find from a study of history is that it was actually when Islam was powerful that this verse was revealed, forbidding any compulsion and establishing universal religious freedom. The very, these sword verses that we talk about, the very first time Muslims were permitted to fight mm -hmm. was after they migrated to Medina, and they were pursued to be killed. At that point in time, chapter 22, verse 40 to 42 were revealed in the Quran, and I'm going to read these very clearly because I want people to know I'm not, you know, cherry-picking or I'm not going into some deep interpretation. This is a very straightforward verse. It says, Permission to fight is given to those against whom war has been waged because they have been wronged. Those who were driven out of their homes only because they said our Lord is God. Mm -hmm. And here's the critical part. If God did not raise some men for the defense of others, then surely... The churches and the cloisters and the synagogues and the mosques would all be torn down. So this permission that was given was after a decade of brutal persecution when Muslims fled for their lives. At that point in time, Muslims were permitted to fight in self-defense to establish universal religious freedom. And in Medina, 
because there was an alliance between the Muslims and the Jews. In fact, you can go and look at the Charter of Medina right now, the Constitution of Medina right now. It says clearly that the Muslims and Jews are equal citizens of one state. Okay. Greg, are you agreeing with this? So this no, idea again, Islam, is it, is, and, and now, uh, hold on, now, yeah. the idea that Islam was spread by the sword is so laughable when you look at just the basic history and facts. Mm-hmm. Not a single, not a single scholar throughout history has asserted this up until this recent times when you have people who have a degree in political science. St. John of Damascus asserted that. He witnessed it in the 8th century, for starters. Well, St. John is not uh, the Quran or the Sunnah or the Khulafah. No, but he was there when they, when they invaded where he was living. I mean, you're saying there are no eyewitnesses to Islamic military so, advances? So, 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 this is my point, right? That ultimately, you know, for anyone to lay a claim against Islam, they can't do so based on the Quran or the Sunnah. They need no, to find... Stick, why did, Muhammad, why did Muhammad behead the tribe of the Qurayza? Oh, very good question. So this is a very common allegation that people bring up, that Prophet Muhammad uh, beheaded... This, this is established in, in the most reliable sources of the Hadiths. You, for not, example, but... have drawn on unreliable Hadith, the Hadith where the lesser jihad is fighting and the greater jihad um, is the interior struggle. Again, that is not accepted as authoritative. I, are, I we, are we disputing, the are we disputing, gentlemen, gentlemen, are out we dis- of the Greg. canonical biography of the Sirah Just a minute, and the Greg. reliable Hadith? Just a minute. Are we disputing the sources of credibility? It's very well, easy to get confused and twist them, which is what, unfortunately, this gentleman is doing. There has to be some awareness of how Islam interprets its own sources. Again, the principle of abrogation in the Quran which is very important. Otherwise, the Quran doesn't make any sense. You get some verses which sound peaceful, and you get some verses which get very violent. The question is, well, how do we make sense of this? And we make sense of it by the Quran's own injunction that its later verses annul its earlier ones. And that is why the trajectory of the career of Muhammad from a relatively peaceable, weak man in Mecca to a very capable warlord in Medina is so important, because that is the trajectory the meaning of the Quran takes and remains authoritative to this time. Muhammad beheaded an entire tribe of Jews who he thought had betrayed him in Medina. Today we'd call that a war crime. This is not an act of a man of peace. Why do so many Muslim terrorists Mm. insist on beheading? Because that's what Muhammad did. That was per- his preferred method. Kasim, what's your response to that? Well, first of all, let me just address this concept of abrogation, this fabricated myth. Nothing in the Quran endorses this. In fact, the Quran, chapter 3, verse 8, is clear that we accept the whole of the Quran, every single verse. So this, this magical, made-up claim of abrogation is something that is left for uh, Disneyland and fairy tales. Uh, the Quran, every single verse is applicable. Every single verse is valid without a doubt. Now, on to this claim of, because this is a very important question, and I'm so glad that it was asked that uh, Prophet Muhammad allegedly executed uh, 700 members of the Bani Qurayza tribe. This is a common allegation. And when we talk about the authorities in Islam, the primary authority is the Quran. This is the primary authority. Nothing can surpass the Quran, nothing can contradict the Quran. Whatever the Quran says is the primary authority. Supplementing that is the Sunnah or the actions of Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Third are the Hadith. Now these Hadith were written sometimes two or three hundred years after the fact. So there's a high degree of inconsistency in the Hadith because it was word of mouth. Everyone here has played the telephone game so we know how stuff can get uh, corrupted. The story of the Banu Qurayza tribe is recorded in uh, Ibn Ishaq's uh, biography, which unfortunately Ibn Ishaq has been regarded as not only a fraudulent and uh, deceptive historian, um, while there is some merit to what he writes, his own contemporaries of that time disregarded him as unreliable. But let's even take his 
account of the story for what it is. Even in his account of the story, what is recorded explicitly clear is that the Banu Qareza tribe signed a treaty with the other Jewish tribes and with the Muslims in Medina that if Medina were to be attacked, they would stand as one community okay. to fight against any outwardly attack. Now, this was a, a, an alliance that the Banu Qareza Jews had made with other Jews and with Muslims. Mm-hmm. In the middle of the attack, the Banu Qareza committed treason and sided with the enemy. Fortunately, the remaining Jewish tribes and the Muslims were able to fight off the enemy, and now the question was, what should be done with this tribe that committed treason? The, the Banu Qareza themselves went to Prophet Muhammad and said, we will not accept your verdict. Right. We want to appoint our own judge. And Prophet Muhammad said, fine, appoint your own judge. I will bind myself to whatever judge you appoint. The Banu Qareza picked their own judge, mm. and that judge said to the Banu Qareza, I will judge you based off the law of the Torah. The Torah in Deuteronomy, it's clear that the punishment for treason is death. And so therefore, this tribe, even if this event occurred, which is highly in doubt, if it occurred, it's because the Banu Qareza committed treason, picked their own judge, who judged them according to their own law. Prophet Muhammad had nothing to do with it. And to insist so is Except contrary to reality. Okay, and Greg. What I would recommend, and, what I would, and Vip, just let me finish. What I would recommend mm. uh, my colleague on the phone call do, if he's sincere, is to read a book called Muhammad and the Jews. It's available online for free. You can find it on Scribd. If he can refute this book, I'll concede the point. But okay. this book provides all the detailed references demonstrating that not only did this event probably not happen, but even if it did, Prophet Muhammad had nothing to do with it, and it does so citing authentic sources. All right. Um, I'm good. Greg, I'm going to give you the last word because we've got so much more to cover. So just very quickly, do you have anything to say? Well, just uh, I managed to find um, Surah 2, verse 106, which right. says about abrogation. We do not abrogate a verse or cause it to be forgotten, except mm-hmm. that we bring forth one better than it or similar to it. Do you not know that Allah is over all things competent? This is at least one of the bases for the Quranic principle of abrogation. And again, the Quran, as the gentleman says, is the most authoritative source in Islam, and it can't be made sense of apart from the principle of abrogation. Okay. Um, Greg, in your book, moving forward, um, we're seeing an increase in Islamic violence around the world, and you're saying it's largely due to misguided Western policy. Um, Explain that. Well, um, the violent essence of Islam has been a constant. Uh, It is doctrinally sown into it Hmm. um, from the days of Muhammad and his successors, the four rightly guided caliphs, who were some of the most um, effective conquering warlords in world history. Um, So the question is, why now, over the past few decades, have we seen an increase yeah, because, you know, you said something very interesting earlier on, that the American military actions in places like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, where we're removing, trying to remove a tyrannical regime, uh, will result in, in a sort of a democracy. You, we're actually seeing the opposite, you're saying. Well, yes. No, I think that's pretty plain. And again, the reason for that is because Islam is a political ideology, not merely uh, a religion, as we understand it in the West, which can sort of coincide with various kinds of civil government. And so what we have been doing really since Jimmy Carter, when he started supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, we have basically had a pro-jihadist foreign policy. And that may sound strange, but it occurred in Afghanistan, to some extent it occurred in Chechnya, in the Balkans, um, and we're pursuing it now, for example, in Syria, Mm. trying to knock off President Assad in a way comparable the way we knocked off Saddam Hussein. Um, the problem is that even though these quasi-secular dictators are distasteful uh, at a variety of levels, um, they are the lesser of evils. And we've seen in Iraq, for example, by removing Saddam Hussein, we really pulled the cork out of the bottle. And what we've had is sort of a low-grade civil war, uh, basically the extermination of the Christian community, uh, which had enjoyed some 
protection under Saddam Hussein. Um, and now, of course, um, the rise of ISIS, which is a Sunni movement, uh, whereas the government now in Iraq is Shia and has excluded Sunnis pretty systematically. So we get this much worse situation. It's not only worse from our point of view in terms of, well, now there's more areas for jihadist terrorism to grow. It's a catastrophe uh, for the region themselves, the people there, Muslim, non-Muslim, whatever. Um, And a lot of them are then necessarily and naturally drawn to something like ISIS, which stands in the um, tradition of Muhammad and is relatively attractive compared to either the United States and its policies or the U.S.-backed inept um, governments which have, uh, we've helped install. So are you saying that ISIS are actually true followers of Islam? Fundamentally, yes. Uh, I mean, they are taking the example of Muhammad and the cause of jihad uh, very seriously. Um, and in your world, very p- literally as well. Well, yes. Uh, li- and literally is a good point, because, again, the, the Quran, which mm. literally means recitation, that is the most authoritative source, and so it has to be taken literally. Uh, I mean, that is, that's the tradition of Quranic interpretation. It's different from, say, interpretation of the Bible. Okay. Um, and so, again, unfortunately, um, now we're seeing real Islam mm. rearing its head. But let me take it to Qasim. Qasim, you purposely distance yourselves from ISIS. Of course, yeah. I think it's uh, laughable that 1,400 years after Prophet Muhammad, we're suddenly seeing real Islam rear its head. Um, this is what happens when you believe in these fairy tales that uh, the Quran is abrogated. Um, the verse this gentleman cited uh, says nothing to the effect. It actually very clearly talks about uh, the Quran abrogating the Bible and uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And no, but he's anyone, but, but but Greg is saying can simply read that. We'll but, uh, we'll we'll see that clearly. Okay, what but, ISIS is demonstrating is a uh, bastardized uh, version of uh, Islam, mm. which, uh, and he said something I agree with 100%. Uh, a lot of it has to do with our unjust foreign policy. People forget that the Mujahideen in Afghanistan were radicalized by textbooks printed at the University of Nebraska but, with but, our tax dollars. Just a minute, Kassim, but uh, he's also saying that ISIS are, are, are literally following Islam. No, they're they're literally following a fascist ideology that has nothing to do with Islam. And the evidence, you know, I think one point that uh, that a lot of critics bring up, which is a very fair point, mm. is if Islam actually is a peaceful religion, then how come we don't see a practical example of it today? And I think this is a very fair point. I think if Muslims are uh, uh, professing that this faith is peaceful and is practical mm. uh, in 21st century uh, uh, earth, why don't we see it? And my response is very candid. You have to look at what Muslims are doing. And the Ahmadiyya Muslim community to which I belong is the world's mm. single largest Muslim sect united under one Imam, His Holiness the Khalifa of Islam. We are in over 200 countries worldwide. Think about that. We are in over 200 countries worldwide. Tens of millions of Muslims from 200 nations united under one caliph. But as a percentage, as a percentage of the as whole... A percentage, we are, as a percentage, we are about 1,000 times, if not 10,000 times larger than ISIS. Yet, ISIS somehow represents true Islam, but us with tens of millions worldwide, hmm. somehow we're considered insignificant. It's, a non, it's completely illogical. What we've done in 125 years, 127 years since we were formed, is we've built over 16,000 mosques. We've built over 600 secular edu- educational institutions for children who are Christian, who are uh, pagan worshippers, who are Muslim, to get an, a free education. We, we have ho- uh, dozens of hospitals all over the world. We literally donate in money and in time billions of dollars a year to serve humanity, okay. just as Islam teaches, just as Prophet Muhammad taught, just as the Quran teaches. So the practical example is there. To ignore that and look at something that came about in the last nine months with ISIS, uh, it just doesn't make sense. All right, Greg, Greg, does that change your mindset? Well, no, of course not. I mean, ISIS is the latest example. That's all. Uh, I mean, yes, there were the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, there Mm. were the Mujahideen in the Balkans. 
uh, Mujahideen in Chechnya. Uh, I mean, there are, you know, the example, again, of the Islamic empires and their campaigns in mm. Europe, in Asia, in North Africa. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. What the, the fellow is saying that on the one hand, he says, well, look, we really got to focus on the Quran and Muhammad, mm. which, we were, which we were sort of doing. And now he says, but look at us now. We have this group, and we're all very nice, reasonable people, and we're doing good things like education and so on. Therefore, what do we conclude from this? Islam is peaceful? It doesn't follow. That's not a logical sentence. You do need to get to the example of Muhammad. You do need to look at the Sunnah and the Quran. And the problem with that is there is so much there which is violent. On Muhammad's uh, death, he uh, had sent letters to the great empires, the Persian Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and elsewhere, instructing them to submit to Islam, his overlordship, or be conquered. Okay, but I and want to bring died. it more to current affairs. Um, you're saying in your book that there should be a policy of containment that will keep us out of costly offensive wars. Uh, you seek to contain Islam at home and abroad. What did you mean? Because that's, that's quite a loaded statement. How, how do you contain Islam on, on U.S. soil? Well, I, I studied um, totalitarianism mm -hmm. uh, when I got my doctorate, and so I sort of recognized the outlines of totalitarianism when I came to study Islam. Mm. And I think the policy of containment that was pursued by the West against Soviet communism in, uh, during the Cold War is a pretty good model for us today. Um, and certainly the military offensive we have been undertaking uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere, and also just our policies in terms of subverting quasi-secular dictatorships, these are proving empirically disastrous. Um, and so we need to stop that which is very costly, both to ourselves and to the people in those countries, and try and work more systematically to prevent Islam, uh, as we work to prevent communism, from spreading to areas of greater strength. And unfortunately, one of the problems we're facing, or will be facing, is a growing Islamic population in Western Europe, which is becoming more organized and institutionalized. And we have seen historically, Lebanon, for example, and elsewhere, that in time, that those communities, they develop a sufficiently powerful Islamic consciousness and desire to become governing according to their own religious laws. You see, I'm having trouble with this because in my conscience, um, in being in America, and, and being an American is a privilege for, for three of us, um, we talk about freedom, freedom of religion, so on and so forth. Uh, I have trouble restricting freedom of religion. I have no problem restricting the freedom of a mindset, particularly an evil one. Yeah, Vip, I think you bring up a good point. Um, you know, what we're looking at here mm. is this increasing calls to uh, to strip American Muslims of their basic fundamental civil rights. Now, here I just gave you. No, an I example certainly said nothing to that effect. Uh, uh, now, you know, here we have. I just provided an example of a worldwide Muslim community united by a caliphate with tens of millions of members. I'm telling you, we follow true Islam exactly as the Quran and Sunnah tell. But because we're not violent, we're suddenly dismissed. So this isn't research. This is just propaganda. What we're finding in uh, America today are increasing calls to uh, strip American Muslims of their civil rights with these ridiculous, nonsensical laws. Uh, right now, there is an armed protest about to happen in front of a mosque in Arizona. I mean, uh, more than half of Muslim children uh, in the United States are telling uh, uh, studies that they're being bullied. And it's because of this demonization, uh, this desire to treat Islam like communism, um, you, you know, when you when you study Islamic history, when you study especially the Middle East and, and, and uh, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, sure, you find your examples of violence. No, there's no part of the world that doesn't have those. 
But when you really look at where these terrorist groups came from, I think me and, and my colleague are in agreement that these emerged out of these illegal wars in Iraq. But I think Vip, here's the biggest question. There's no alternative that people are offering. What other, uh, you know, people like to say America is a Christian nation. Well, when was the last time America turned the other cheek uh, in its foreign policy? Um, you know, what alternative do we have to the example of Prophet Muhammad, who championed universal freedom of conscience, who said that fighting should only be defensive and only fought in self-defense for Christians, for Jews? You want to talk about the letters that he sent out on his deathbed? Look up a book by John Andrew Morrow, The Covenants of Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World. It's on Amazon right now. These are his own words. Rather than listening to some you know, 21st century uh, sociologist with no background in Islam, read the words of Prophet Muhammad himself in these covenants. Then you'll understand that it isn't Islam that's the problem. It's injustice. It's, uh, it's corruption. Uh, it's everything that is the antithesis of Islam. Okay, so I think the, the, the chief barrier to this uh, conversation seems to be, I think, uh, we're understanding different things. Um, Greg, page 18, you said the chief barrier today to a better public understanding of Islam is sloppy language. Yes, and well, we're seeing it in spades. I mean, I mean, you know, one of the things is we talk about Islam, well, what does that mean? Well, it sort of means peace or it means submission. Well, that sounds fine. Mm. Um, and uh, it's a religion. Well, that sounds fine, too. Um, but we're dealing with different moral universes, and this is what it's difficult, understandably difficult, for Westerners or Christians or whomever mm. to understand. When Islam is talking about something like justice, Justice is the reign of the law of God, Sharia law, the reign of Allah. And this is the principal obligation of the Ummah, the Muslim community, to bring to the earth. This is with the understanding, again, from the time of Muhammad, which is why the campaigns of his successors were so spectacularly successful, because they had this religious imperative to mm. their conquests. Um, so, yes, we can talk about peace and education, for example, and these things all sound fine. But, of course, just about any ideology you want to pick from history that was a vi violence and oppressive used all these terms, too. The whole question is, well, what is meant by them, and what is the history that informs them? Um, and if I could, I'd like to read a quote Okay, very quickly, because um, I've got three other issues that are going to be quite okay. controversial, and I want to give you guys both the opportunity to talk about it. So, yeah, shoot me the verse. Okay, well, it, it's a quote. I, I had mentioned it to you. The Archbishop Amalnona of mm. the Catholic Chal Chaldean Church in Mosul, Iraq, mm. and he's writing to us in the West. He says, Our sufferings today are the prelude of you. Western and Eastern, European and Western Christians will also suffer in the near future. Right. I lost my diocese. The physical setting of my apostolate has been occupied by Islamic radicals who want us converted or dead. Mm -hmm. But my community is still alive. Please try to understand us. Your liberal and democratic principles are worth nothing here. You must consider again our reality in the Middle East, because you are welcoming in your countries an ever-growing number of Muslims. Also, you are in danger. You must take strong and courageous decisions, even at the cost of contradicting your principles. You think all men are equal, but that is not true. Islam does not say that all men are equal. Your values are not their values. If you do not understand this soon enough, you will become the victims of the enemy you have welcomed in your home. Now, this is coming from a man who has lived out the reality of Islamic oppression in, an, in the Islamic world. And this is something that we in the West, I think, have trouble understanding precisely because our own experience is very different. You see, our opinions are determined by the environment we're in, by the, by the information we receive, by the communication we conduct. Um, is it possible that this person was surrounded by fundamentalists only and not the general population at large? Well, he's particularly referring to ISIS, so we do need to bear that in right. mind. Right. So, question, well, I'm not surprised then. The question then. is, what is ISIS and what is their inspiration? And their inspiration is the Quran and Muhammad. Because I keep getting the feeling that you're very convinced that ISIS is Islam, and more importantly, Islam is ISIS. 
Well, no, not entirely. I'm saying that ISIS is a logical and entirely orthodox interpretation and application of the Quran and Muhammad. There's no question. There are, yes, there are a lot of different kinds of Muslims in the world. They have nuances of belief. They speak different languages. Uh, ethnically, they're different. There's a great diversity in Islamic situ- civilization. That's true. Same as but Christians. there is something at the core of it, and that is the Quran and Muhammad. Okay, uh, let's just move on. Um, one of the things that really, really got me was on page 26, you said the issue of rape. Rape is permissible during jihad to women of non-Islamic faith. Yes, they're basically considered plunder of battle. Uh, Qasim? Yeah, I mean, again, this is this is what happens when we make these illogical statements. We come up with just nonsensical uh, comments that are very incendiary and that paint a horrible picture. And I'm supposed to come out and, like, no, I condemn rape, I condemn this. Well, obviously, right? I mean, this is uh, ludicrous to assume for even a moment uh, that Islam endorses this. The Quran, uh, far from what is being attributed to it, was the first book to give women the right to divorce, the right to choose who they want to marry, the right to inherit, the right to run for political office, to be leaders. Uh, <laughs> run know, for political so, office in 17th century Arabia? I mean, that is really rich. Years, I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you, sir. Please don't interrupt me. Thir- 1,300 years after, uh, 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 after Hazrat Aisha was one of the foremost jurists uh, and legal scholars, hmm. uh, the West, uh, uh, Western states finally permitted women to go to law school. So this idea, this nonsensical, quite offensive, barbaric idea that Islam somehow permits rape, when the Quran adamantly says, do not inherit women against their will. Uh, this is not, you know, my interpretation. These are the exact words of the Quran. Do not inherit women against their will. Uh, you, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this is somebody with an agenda who's trying to make up things that simply don't exist in the Quran. So, Greg, would you take that statement back based on what Qasim said? No, and in fact, what I would rely on in mm. particular um, are the hadiths, reliable hadiths, which describe the battles that Muhammad fought. The Quran in and of itself is very hard to understand because it refers to a whole bunch of things uh, that are beyond it, which occurred in the life of Muhammad. Mm. Uh, And so you need to look at that life. And again, the battles he fought, four main battles, Mm. the um, Muslims with him, one of the reasons they fought, and a lot of people fought in those days, was for plunder. And unfortunately, that included women and children as well. And because of that, um, that wasn't just a, an anachronism, unfortunately, because through Muhammad's example, it's been enshrined, and that is why women are treated so abominably to this day mm-hmm. in orthodox societies. You read, for example, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who grew up in such a society. Uh, she is truly authoritative on this question, uh, because she personally experienced it as a Muslim woman. I would encourage people to look at her. Kasim? Well, uh, quoting Ayan Hirsi Ali as an authority on Islam is like quoting David Duke on an authority on uh, on, on race relations. Uh, David Duke, the, the racist Christian uh, terrorist. Um, you know, I, I, I find this That's ironic that on one hand, sir. I, 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 uh, it's, it's honest. Uh, on one hand, it's interesting that uh, my colleague slander. is saying that the Quran should be taken literally, mm. and then he says, well, it's very complex and very difficult to understand. No, in fact, go to alislam.org. You can download a free copy of the Quran in English in about 25, 30 different languages and read it for yourself. And what you'll find is that the Quran is clear that do not inherit women against your will. But even if you want to rely on the Hadith, let me cite a very short Hadith for you on one of these alleged plunders where the companions of Prophet Muhammad said that they caught a few goats from a flock and slaughtered them and the meat was almost ready when the Prophet Muhammad arrived and angrily upset the pot and threw the food away and said, plunder is no better than carry-on. He forbade it categorically. There was no permission to plunder whatsoever. And, and, and you know, the frustration that a lot of Muslims have mm. is that, you know, we do things like, you know, go to muslimsforlife.org. We raised uh, over 30,000 blood donations to save uh, lives. No, no, yeah, I know, but I, I, I want to stick to the issue. This was a no, very no, no, but, controversial... I'm trying to make this point here. Yeah. I'm trying to make this point here. 
that the, the, the struggle that Muslims have mm-hmm. is that there's, it's a lose-lose situation. If we stay quiet and let individuals like this gentleman write our narrative, then we call off as intolerant. When we speak up and say, hey, look, we're saving lives, we're serving humanity, we're building schools, we're building hospitals, we're dismissed as insincere. There's no scenario where we can have a dialogue and just sit down and say, hey, look, we're human beings. You know, I have kids, you have kids. We want our kids to live in a peaceful, safe world. Let's find a way to make it happen. You know, my next book, Talk to Me, uh, has writers who are Christian, who are atheists, who are Jewish, who are Muslim, coming together and sharing their examples of how they are working together to overcome this ignorance and this intolerance. Well, you know, the way I'm seeing it is that Greg seems to be interpreting the word of Allah in a, in a particular way, and, and you are talking about the actions of some of the followers. So there, there seem to be two different things going on. Yeah, and, and, and what I would just simply submit is that, you know, he's certainly entitled to his opinion, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I want to be clear about that. You know, Islam champions free speech and freedom of conscience, so I certainly respect right. his right to speak his mind, and I would never censor him uh, by any stretch of the imagination. My only request is that let's have a dialogue based off of intellectual and academic scholarship. Let's talk to one another with actual scholarship, not with the intent to defame or demonize one another, but let's find a way to work together because, look, we're all on the same planet, and I assure you that if we work together, we'll get to peace a lot faster than by trying to uh, demonize or or one-up one another. Well, Kasim, that's a great way to end the show. Um, Greg, where can we get the book, House of War? Well, you can get it now at uh, WND.com, World mm-hmm. Not Daily. Uh, World, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> World Net Daily. World Net Daily. Um, and it will be available more generally um, at the beginning of August. And there's some on t- online retailers that are carrying it, but uh, I think WND.com Great. is the best spot. Thank you for coming on the show, Greg. Kasim, where can we get the book? Uh, you uh, can pick talk up- to me. Uh, Talk to me is going to be available uh, this November. You can follow me on Twitter at MuslimIQ mm-hmm. for updates, and uh, you can pick up Extremist on uh, Amazon right now. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. Gentlemen, it was great having you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. A special shout-out of thanks to my dream team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. Your comments on your followers so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswal Report. I wish you and your loved ones a fabulous evening, and until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead.